Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the infinite guest network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Two things. One, I have Night Shift by the Commodores in my head right this second. And my guess is now you will too. Anyway, I thought you'd like to know that. And two, oh, what a glorious time we live in when the new book about Old Dirty Bastard does, that's does include the story about him losing his shit and getting arrested in the parking lot of a Philly McDonald's. I'm so happy about that. I was living in Philly when that happened. So I I just feel so proud. Okay, business. Let's take care of business first. Coming up Saturday, November 15th, 7 p.m. We're going to be live at Videology in Brooklyn again for another Pause the Tape. That's what we call the blend show that we do with Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast run by the very wonderful Miss Eleanor and Miss Ksenia. Uh, This time, though, the theme is remakes and sequels. So is someone talking about Grease 2? You bet your sweet bippy. Is it me? No. Dot, dot, dot. We'll see you with that. Okay, that's enough business. On to the big thing for this week. Now, I don't know how much CNET you read. Me, I read, well, a lot of Facebook. And if somebody happens to post something from CNET on there, then I catch it. But there was a study done by the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester in the UK. It was a year-long study. And basically, users were directed to a special website where they would play an online game called Hooked on Music. And you could still play it, by the way. If you, if you Google this, you can still play this. And it contains clips from a thousand hit songs from the past 70 years. And so it's like the top-selling 40 tracks of each decade since the 40s. And there are four games. There are Recognize That Tune, then there's What's the Hook, Time Trial, and In a Row. But basically, all of these games, because I, I played them all, have kind of similar rules and, and method of playing. So what it is is they will start playing a song. Let's say they play Every Breath You Take by The Police. Then it asks you, do you recognize this song? Yes, I do. And the song is playing. Then when you say you recognize it, you have to sing along. And then it drops out. But you keep singing along. And then it comes back in four seconds later or something like that. If it comes back in at the place it's supposed to, and you would know because you've been singing along, then you would say, yes, this came back in at the right place. But if it doesn't, if they somehow skipped ahead or went back to another part in the song and it didn't match up, then you would say no. So not only is it tracking how quickly and readily you can identify pop songs, but it's also tracking how wholly and completely you know those songs and which of the parts of these songs are the hook from memory, no matter when it is you're listening to it. So that's basically what the game in this study was. Now, they're conducting this study to figure out how the brain processes music and how, you know, music and memory work and why certain pieces of music stay in your memory for such a long time. Does that sound like any show or podcast you're listening to right now? So, right. That's why, you know, I was definitely drawn to this study. But what's really amazing about this is I think the end goal 
for something like this is that if they have a better understanding, they're saying, of the way that musical memory really works, and not just in the way we do it where it's kind of like, oh my god, the Comanche from the Pulp Fiction soundtrack totally brings me back to my junior prom because dot dot dot. Not in that way, but if they can really understand the science of how musical memory works, then they're thinking that they can take the next step, which is researching how that can affect or help people with dementia. So this is a fascinating study, and I'm, I'm really interested to see where it goes from here. But what they did, though, was they collected the data from the people who played the game, 12,000 people. And on average, those people found that, okay, you know what, before I even say that, I was going to say, like, what's the song they found to be the catchiest? Before I even say that, if you asked me, just me, what are the seven catchiest or most recognizable songs of the last 70 years. Just off the top of my head, right, here we go. I'm going to say In the Mood, Rock Around the Clock, Sweet Home Alabama, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Satisfaction, I'm Too Sexy, Call Me Maybe. That's what I would say. And you know what? As far as this study goes, I am right on none of them. According to this study, the top 20 most recognizable songs of the last 70 years are Wannabe by the Spice Girls. That's the number one most recognizable song of the last 70 years. Kaboom. Blew your mind. Okay. Also, Mambo number five, Eye of the Tiger, Just Dance by Lady Gaga, SOS, ABBA, Pretty Woman, Beat It, I Will Always Love You, Don't You Want Me by Human League, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, Aerosmith, Poker Face, Mbop, it's Now or Never, Elvis Presley. You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, BTO. Wow, seriously? Okay. Billie Jean, Karma Chameleon, Baby One More Time, Devil in Disguise. That's not to be confused with Devil Inside by NXS. No, this is Devil in Disguise by Elvis Presley. That's Looks Like an Angel. Okay, right? We're going to get to that in a second. Rivers of Babylon by Boney M. Oh, we're definitely getting to that in a second. And Candle in the Wind by Elton John. Let that sink in for a second. Let those 20 songs determined by this study, data mined from over 12,000 people, to be the catchiest, not of all time, but of the last 70 years. Let it sink in for three, two, one. Okay, let's get into it. Back up, Boney M. Seriously, what the fuck? Because did you notice that there's the presence of that and a song? I have to be honest up front with you right now. I do not recognize that song. I listened to it a little bit and I went, oh, yeah, this is that that song. OK, I, I think I've kind of heard this. But that is in the same way the first time that I recognized, oh, that I guess that's Captain of Her Heart by Duble, right? Got it. But you mean to tell me that that is included on here and not one Beatles song? Seriously? And look, I am in total agreement that the two Michael Jackson songs on here or Beat It, and Billie Jean, that those are his two most recognizable. I agree. But are you saying that the same goes for the two Elvis songs? That It's Now or Never and Devil in Disguise are on here, but not Hound Dog and Jailhouse Rock? What? That is like saying that the two most recognizable Michael Jackson songs are The Girl Is Mine and What's Up With You. And then S.O.S. for real? And in ABBA's entire musical catalog... That's the most recognizable one, but not Dancing Queen 
and not in terms of catchiness. Take a chance, take a chance, take a take a chance, chance, take a chance, take a chance, take a take a chance, chance. Because that makes me want to murder somebody. And sometimes I think that's a characteristic of catchy songs is that eventually you listen to it over and over again and you feel a little homicidal and take a chance, take a chance, take a take a chance, chance. Yeah, that uh, gets to me that way. So what? Crazy. And look, I may I, I know I sound incredulous about this whole thing. I know. And it's not that I don't believe the study or that I think it's, it's bullshit or that I, I disapprove of the way they mine data or that I think what it's trying to do, which is help dementia, is frivolous. No, 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 no. But what is it? it? I think it just bothers me. Like, what makes a song catchy? What made those songs catchy to those 12,000 people? What are the components to musical composition that make one song just good, technically sound fun, and another, like the nastiest case of poison ivy that will not stop itching no matter how much musical calamine lotion I apply? I don't know. And I guess at this point, the people behind this study don't really know that either. I think that's what they're trying to eventually figure out. What is the precise combination of elements that, when combined in song and with the emotional state of the listener, completely take over our brains? I am really anxious to find out because it will shed so much light on 2004 when, for three days straight, I had Eye in the Sky by the Alan Parsons Project in my head. This frightened me because I, I have a friend who claims that she can always tell what kind of mood she's in based on the song she has stuck in her head. It's like music is trying to subconsciously tell her how she feels. And if that's true for all of us, even me, then 2004, those three days were a very dark, confusing and shameful time. Then 2005, one whole week, not just a few days, one whole week, Party All the Time by Eddie Murphy. And I remember this because at the time, VH1 was constantly rerunning the old I Love the 80s episodes. And there was a bit about this song and video and, and Rick James just getting in there and like trying to take over Eddie Murphy. And so the song naturally had its wet little finger in my ear for an extended period of time. Because if I'm watching this on television and I keep seeing the same episode over and over again, then that's just going to sort of wind up in my head. But the crazy thing is, the earworm for me, the little sliver, wasn't the chorus. It was the first words of the first verse. Just the, girl, I can't understand it. Why you want to hurt me? That's what was in my head over and over again. Thanks, Rick James, though I really don't know why. Anytime I watch 30 Rock, anytime, even if it's not an episode that contains these songs, I will get stuck in my head, werewolf bar mitzvah and muffin top. And I don't know what it is. And 30 Rock broke a lot of ground but least mentioned is that it really did corner the market on cranking out original earworms. And then let's go back to what I said at the very top of the show. Night Shift. Why here? Why now? I have known and loved that song for years. But why, after last week, hearing some guy on the subway platform taking advantage of the echo chamber that is our underground rail system, belting out this song, and thereby, I have to say, delivering one of the most beautiful renditions of it I've ever heard. Why is it I can't get that out of my head now? Why is it that when I took a flight on Monday, just as the pilot was saying, put your phones in airplane mode, I went, oh no, not yet. First, my captain, I have to download Night Shift into my iPhone so that I can listen to it over and over again on this flight because I really can't get through the next three hours without hearing Night Shift. I have no idea. Somebody please tell me. And then maybe it can explain the Aniki Niki song, which I wish I could explain in more detail, other than to say that when I was in college, I had to take jazz dance and we did this warm up. We did the same warm up every 
week. And the teacher would play the same warm-up mix every week that had a sample in it that just went, aniki-niki, aniki-niki, aniki-niki. Do you know how maddening it is to have a song in your head for a whole day or a few hours that not only won't leave, but also you aren't able to identify it because there's no real song. It's just part of a larger dance track that blends one into the other. And because the only lyrics you know and can sing over and over again aren't actual words. Do you know how maddening it is to have a Niki Niki, a Niki Niki in your head? I'm sure you do now. And finally, this. Yeah, I love the video too, but make it stop. People, please make it stop. Too many cooks, 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 too many cooks. All right, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry to do that to you, but I am not suffering through this alone. Okay, our story for this episode comes to us from Philadelphia storyteller Hillary Ray. And it's her story about how while every romantic couple may have a song that brought them together, not every romantic couple is one part lead singer from Real Big Fish, and not every song that brought them together is I'm Gonna Get You by Bizarre Inc. How's everyone doing? Good. Was anyone dancing in their seats to that song just now? Awesome. So I never thought that I would fall in love crowd surfing <laughs> at age 15 at a Goldfinger concert. Yes! But there I was, and everyone had taken a break from skanking, and, and people were rising up into the air, and I figured that it was my time to fly. So I went up there, and I was soaring on a sea of grabby hands, and I was looking at the stage, and it was the opening act, and it was then that I saw the lead singer of the opening band, Real Big Fish. And I just looked at him with his Hawaiian shirt and his yellow Doc Martens and his slicked brown pompadour. And I thought, I am going to marry that man one day. And as I was gazing at him, I got dropped on the ground, smack hard hitting against the concrete. And then I saw stars. And I couldn't tell if it was because I just fell in love or I had a concussion. <laughs> This was the early to mid-90s, and the internet was just invented. So in order to uh, stalk the person that you're wooing to marry you, you had to refer to the local alt-weeklies papers, like the Philadelphia Weekly and the Philadelphia City Paper, to find out when the band that you wanted to see was coming back to town based on the ads in the paper. And this was a perfect time because it was at the rise of popularity of third-wave ska music, and Real Big Fish was going straight to the top so they were coming back in just a month and playing two shows on the same day one in the afternoon at HMV record store and one at night at the same venue where I fell in love and so I was determined I was gonna go and and meet my love again and so I asked my parents for a note to leave school early that day so I could get to HMV with ample time and so they sent a note along with me to school that said please excuse Hillary from seventh period she has to go tell the man that she's going to marry that he's going to marry her 
And so I dragged my friend Alicia with me downtown and we went to HMV. We were like two hours early. No one else was there. And she just cut school like a regular high school student would. (laughs) And so we just sit down in front of the stage and instantly I'm bored, like zero attention span. So I just start scanning the HMV, like looking what's going on around. And I'm doing like a panoramic view with my eyes. And there I see him, Aaron, the lead singer of Real Big Fish. And he's in the techno music section. It's so weird. And before I could really process it, my friend Alicia is pushing me towards him. And I'm like two inches from his face. And before I can really think about what I'm going to say, I just say, why are you in the techno music section? (laughs) And then he just looks into my eyes and he sings. Wow, waste your time. You know you're going to be mine. You know you're going to be mine. I'm going to get you, baby. I'm going to get you. Yes, I am. And I'm like, whoa. (laughs) He saw me crowd surfing a month ago, and this is what it's like to have a soulmate. (laughs) And right as I come to, I notice that Aaron is holding a single of bizarre inks. I'm gonna get you. (laughs) And he says, I've been looking for this song everywhere. It's my favorite early 90s techno dance jam. And I'm like, oh, me too. (laughs) So we introduce ourselves, we exchange names, we hug, we take a couple pictures together. And he says, yes, get ready for the show. So I go back and sit down in front of the stage. And then the show starts and they start playing all the songs and I'm singing along every word because I memorized all of the songs in the month between now and when I didn't know who they were. And it got to a point in the show where they were like, does anyone have any requests? And before I realized that I said something, I said something, I I named a song and they said, well, this is a duet and it has a girl in it. We need someone to sing the girl part. And before I could even think what was happening, my friend Alicia pushes me on the stage. And there I am standing with Aaron from Real Big Fish. We're like the 90s ska version of Sonny and Cher. But instead of singing, I've got you, babe, we sing a song about how his last girlfriend became a lesbian. And I sang the girl part with so much gusto to the point that I needed to let him know with my voice that I would never become a lesbian. (laughs) And as if that day could not get any better, that night I go to their show at the venue where I crowd surfed and I'm in the front row and they're about to get to that duet song and he looks at me in the front row and he gestures to the bouncer and I get pulled up onto the stage and I get to sing the song again in front of 800 people. (laughs) And I sang this song with even more gusto (laughs) to the point that I sang both the girl parts and the boy parts. (laughs) I sang, I'll even cut my penis off for you and Aaron didn't even seem to care we just looked at each other and after the show was over we exchanged numbers he gave me his beeper number (laughs) I gave him my parents landline and we also exchanged addresses And so from that point forward, we had this amazing pen pal relationship. He would send me letters on Japanese stationery that had those little Japanese stickers that were all pictures of his face. And at the end of each letter, it would always say the same thing. It would say, I miss you, heart, heart, 
Aaron. Now they would come back a lot and so every show I would go and there would be passes for me waiting and we'd hang out a little bit before the show and after the show. And then that summer they were on the Vans Warped Tour which was an all day festival in a parking lot and it was 100 degrees and I just spent all day with Aaron drinking Jolt Cola and watching punk and ska bands. It was great. And then at one point he got down on one knee and he grabbed my wrist and he put a bracelet on my wrist. And now he did not say the words, will you marry me? But I knew what he meant. The bracelet was this rainbow colored series of plastic hearts that were strewn together with elastic and I wore it every day from that moment on. And a few weeks later, school started. It was my sophomore year of high school and I went into school with confidence. I said, guess what guys, I'm engaged to a rock star. And everyone at my school believed my reality because I believed my reality and I, everyone like knew about the singing with them and I was even wearing Hawaiian shirts to school every day and I was bringing in all of the letters and all the things that he was sending me in our pen pal relationship and it was really wonderful. <laughs> but no one seemed to question the fact or find it weird that I was 16 and Aaron was in his 20s, he never was very specific. He just told me that he was too young to rent a car. My parents didn't even seem to be too worried about it. They'd be like, oh, have fun. And they'd answer the phone when he called the landline. And they really had no reason to be worried because our love was totally platonic. <laughs> but at 16, I thought that that's how all true love started, totally platonic. There was one time we were on the side of the stage on South Street and there was an opening band opening for them and I was with Aaron and we were watching them and there was just like black curtains like there are right here on this stage and he just like wrapped the black curtains around us in a cocoon really tight and we just hugged for like 30 minutes. Now, this engagement went on for about two years, and in the span of the two years, the Real Big Fish uh, stopped coming to Philadelphia with as much frequency, and, and then the phone call stopped, and the letters stopped, and they were coming to town, so I figured I would go, and so I go to the show, and there's no backstage pass waiting for me, and I think about it, and I'm like, oh, I'll buy a ticket, so I, I bought a ticket, and I go into the venue, and I'm standing in the back, and it's really crowded, and I'm just watching everyone cheering and singing along and there's even people crowd surfing and it was then watching the band and watching the fans I realized that I was not really engaged to Aaron the lead singer of Real Big Fish and he was just really doing his job he was engaging with one of his fans and so I went home that night and I was pissed off and so I put everything that had to do with him in a box. I just threw everything in, including the engagement bracelet, and I taped it up, and I stopped listening to ska music, and I started listening to emo. <laughs> and then I went into school the next day, and I said, guess what, guys? The engagement is off. And I was as dramatic as the cover of Us Weekly, so everyone backed off, they understood. <laughs> Now, time went on. I got over it, as, as we all can see, hopefully. Uh, but a few years ago, I was in my parents' basement. They were asking me to go through some stuff that they wanted to throw out. And I was down there, and I found this box. And it was labeled. It said, the real big box of Aaron. And the, the ink was smeared with my 17-year-old tears. <laughs> 
So I open the box up and I'm going through it and I'm looking at everything and I see the bracelet. And so I put the bracelet on and all of the memories just start flooding back and the love starts flooding back. And I realized that it was love and it was legitimate love. It just wasn't necessarily the love that I was experiencing now later in life, but it, it was something. And I just had the bracelet on for a couple minutes and then I put it back in the box and I taped the box back up and I added a second label and it said, do not throw out ever. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Hillary Ray. Love her. And you know, I have to be honest, I never had that kind of experience where I'm in the audience at a show and I make eye contact with someone on stage and then it becomes a thing where I'm in love. It did happen once where I made eye contact with someone on stage and that someone was Madonna. And it's not so much that I fell in love that I peed my pants a little bit because quite frankly, making eye contact with Madonna is terrifying. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And like I was saying, coming up Saturday, November 15th, we are live at Videology in Brooklyn for Pause the Tape, stories about the musical moments in film and television, this time in remakes and sequels. Come on out and see us. And as always, if you can't quite make it to Brooklyn, as I know very often I have not been able to, you can hear us right here in the American Public Media Compound on iTunes. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>